I cannot swear to you that there is swearing on this show, but there might be. It's the kind of behavior I engage in. It's Wednesday, October 9th, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The president, Donald J. Trump, set in motion what could be a mass slaughter of the Kurds today. He offered his official explanation thusly. Well, they're going to be escaping to Europe. That's where they want to go. They want to go back to their homes. But Europe didn't want them from us. We could have given it to them. They could have had trials. They could have done whatever they wanted. But as usual, uh, it's not reciprocal. You know my favorite word, reciprocal. That's all I want. I don't want an edge. I just want reciprocal. And it's not reciprocal, Steve. It's not a fair deal for the United States. And when President Obama took the PKK, you know, when they, when they bring in PKK, uh, that's a tough deal because that's been a mortal enemy of Turkey. So when you bring them in into a partnership, it's a tough situation. In other words, it is everyone else's fault. It's Obama's fault for aligning with the Kurds. You know the Kurds, one of the world's most respected fighting forces who actually did help, greatly help, eradicate our grave enemy. Yeah, thanks, Obama. Also, it's Europe's fault because they won't repatriate terrorists on the president's timetable. So let Turkey roll in, let ISIS escape, and let's cue a bloodbath of our former Obama allies. Own the libs via the Kurdish bank shot. Let us say, let us suppose that Trump's theory of politics is right and his 42% approval rating will not shift. His base will still like him. How's this help? You have engaged in an act that went like this. Everyone, every expert, everyone in uniform, even most of the people on Fox. If you do this, Mr. President, you will kill the Kurds. Trump, don't care, I'm going to do it anyway. Then he does it. And then the Kurds are killed. And Trump's answer will be, eh, blame France. Also, he, I guess, will assure us, don't worry, because once that happens, Turkey's going to suffer economically. How will that in any way advance the interests of Trump's base, Trump's voters, the unwavering 42%? I don't know. We'll see. I hope the death toll is in the dozens, not the hundreds or thousands. That's where we are right now. But at least afterwards, we can all say, thanks, Obama. On the show today, it is the last day of this, I hope, but I promise to listen to all the considered opinions of the commentariat once they did their homework on China, Daryl Morey, and Hong Kong. The reading period is over. They have voiced their opinions, and I will render judgment on how they did. But first, the apathy belt is a name given to the swath of our country where voter turnout is lowest. It's mostly southern. It stretches from Appalachia to the southwest, and it encapsulates communities and counties where civic engagement is far below the national average. And have you seen the national average? Nick Foriezos of the site Ozzy invented the term apathy belt, and he visited the communities, and he is now here to analyze the characteristics of the places where the residents of our democracy care the least about that fact. So I commute via the subway most days, and sometimes I look up, and when it's not Dr. Zismore staring at me, 
It's a cool millennial or maybe Gen Z person aggressively wearing monochrome, sometimes matching skirt and lipstick. And they're usually destroying a piece of technology, like setting a laptop on fire with a blowtorch or blowing up a television. Who are these Luddites who hate technology? Oh, no, no, no. They're not Luddites. They've just redefined what is cool media consumption. Their name is Ozzy, and they are... I don't know. They're like the uh, recycling to the extreme of media these days. Look at the whole Aussie thing with a little bit of a gimlet eye, except when it comes to our old friend, Nick Foriezos, because Nick covers national politics for Aussie, and he has been on the show before. He's a fascinating guy, and he's written a fascinating story about something he calls the apathy belt. Hey, Nick, have you brought your guitar and you're willing to shred to show just how cool you are and willing to recycle to the extreme? You know, Mike, with an introduction like that, it's really hard to <laughs> to have a response except to say, I think you got us slightly wrong, and this is where I'll give our defense of Ozzy. What we're really about is bringing you stories that you haven't read anywhere else. So when I pitch these kinds of stories and we'll go into one of them, I'm not allowed to cover anything that already has been covered by the New York Times, CNN, NPR, USA Today, Washington Post, Atlantic. You get the picture. Point is – we're really out of the box. Heck, I'm the one Google searching everything, man, wow. and uh, looking for it. And so these stories really are original. They are different. Yes, we might set a laptop on fire on your New York subway commute, but 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 bear with us. Ozzy.com, you know, you are going to read something different there. All right. <laughs> but let's go. Let's go to this story that you did, which was about the apathy belt. So was that the framing coming in or after you did your research, did you say, hey, these communities connect. Let's call it a belt. <laughs> That is crazy because we did this weird thing in reporting where we actually got the data first and then we came up with a story idea. It was Love nuts. It. Yeah. Um, but yes, so we, we saw the data. What we were looking at is we looked at voter turnout um, and lack of turnout in every single county in the country. That's 3,000 counties um, over the last four major elections. So 2012, 14, 16, 18. And what we found was that the lowest turnout consistently, 204 of the 300 worst you know, counties were in just six states, uh, mm. West Virginia to uh, Texas and New Mexico with Kentucky, Arkansas, Oklahoma, you know, mixed in between. Right. So of those states, uh, and was it, were these all elections, presidential elections, what? No, it was, it was 12, 14, 16, 18. So those are the midterms. Oh, what you okay. see is overarchingly, though, the turnout is lower in the states, regardless of if it's a presidential or a midterm. It's been especially bad, this apathy belt that we call it in 18. Now, I would guess, I mean, this doesn't apply to the midterms, but there is an effect that if you don't have good turnout during the presidential elections, you get out of the habit, you probably don't vote during the midterms. Most of those states, in fact, I think every one of those states, except for New Mexico, it wouldn't be considered a purple state. So maybe that affects sure. things, that you know sure. that your vote really doesn't matter if you live in Kentucky, you know which way that state is voting for the president. I, I think those are very fair points. And yes, they have been dominated by single party control and also corruption. There's so many crazy examples. I was reporting the story of, you know, like local sheriffs throwing out voting boxes and then uh, writing a book about it later, you know. So yeah. this really depresses turnout. And I think it is really important to view this stuff, not just, you know, in the states where we know that they're purple, but also in states like this, because it does, you know, it is something that we can study to see, okay, how do you affect turnout in states like Wisconsin or Ohio or Michigan that are actually purple states? Mm -hmm. uh, and when you say corruption, the effect isn't just direct corruption as to the electoral process, but general perceptions of corruption make voters think that their vote doesn't matter. Huey Long, baby. Huey Long.
Although in Louisiana, you know, sometimes votes were double the amount of people who lived in the uh, exactly. in the Canton. Right, right. Um, so, what is the what are some other through lines about what causes apathy in these counties? Yeah, yeah. So um, those are the major ones. But you know, one of the examples I visited was actually Chattahoochee County in Georgia, right? And this mm-hmm. is kind of nuts to me, but it's a county that's you know rural but not too rural. It's about a thirty minute drive from Georgia's second biggest city. Right. It has it's lesser educated, but not that lesser educated. You know, all intents and purposes, it should be like a mediocre county in voter turnout, not too high, not too low. But it actually has had the lowest voter turnout in each of the last four elections, including one election. I think it was twenty fourteen. That was as low as like. 8%, 8% turnout. And when I visited the county, you, know, you just saw a real gutting of any sort of like community activities, you know, not really any, you know, common gathering spaces. There was a military base, a lot of the population there was transient, might not be voting in the area. And also you had a county commission and board of election supervisors who would not engage at all. I mean, these were people who did not want to have any interviews, who didn't want to even like talk to me over email, who, you know, stalled me at every corner. They even told me that in order to get a message to their county commissioners, again, these are like six people who meet up once a month to talk this kind of stuff and also are supposed to be, you know, accountable to the public. They wanted me to mail them questions, like not not email, like <laughs> physical snail mail. And when I was like, well, can you pass the message along and call them? She's like, well, what I'll do is I'll take a note and I'll put in each of their six mailboxes. Uh-huh. I'm just like, well, so there a- are ways in which, you know, <laughs> local politics also plays a role. I guess the old song's supposed to say, that's what I like about the South. It's just a slower <laughs> pace. And they, hey, man, uh, I'm from Georgia. I get it. <laughs> most, so I would guess, I don't know, you can't, these are so many counties and you only went to a couple, but do the local officials think that they're, think that things aren't working or is the lower turnout an indication that for them things are working? That's a really good question. And, you know, I talked to one expert, Charles Bullock from the University of Georgia, who's a political scientist there. There is a gain, he said, to depressing turnout, right? It's something that, you know, if you're a long-term public official and you've been there for a long time, you uh, don't have many media outlets around that area that are going to, like, keep you accountable, like, you might depress turnout because, you know, you kind of like your job. It's cushy and you want to stay in it, you know, and a more turnout means more chance that you're going to get upset, right? But most places and most people I talk to in communities like this they want to see things change. You know, you got people on the ground who are really working to make a difference. And you look at what, you know, states like Oregon, Colorado, and others have done, and this is also part of the series that we're doing called Who Cares, is looking at what has worked in places like Oregon, Colorado, Minnesota. They've implemented stuff that really has changed turnout. Yeah. What about information or education? Are these mostly underinformed voters? Yeah. I mean, you know, the stats bear out that undereducation, um, less high school, less college degrees, things like that do play a role. Poverty plays a role as well. But again, it's not the only thing. I mean, you know, so I went to this place, Harding County in rural eastern New Mexico. This was this was truly in the middle of nowhere. Not even like the cool in, in the middle of nowhere New Mexico. Like you know, this is like the like these are the plains and three yeah. hours from Amarillo, yeah. Texas, three hours from uh yeah. Anyway, so no no uh, sales of red pepper by the side of the road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Um, and it was a ranching town of about 500 people, you know, below average or way below average in every education poverty barometer. And yet it hit 100 percent turnout in 2012 and 2014. It lagged in 2018 with 97 percent, which still led the nation. Yeah. So 
places like that are showing that it doesn't have to be this way. It's not just about education. It's not just about poverty. Yeah, of course, when you have 498 people <laughs> in your county, you could lose 3% of the population if Steve has an ingrown toenail. <laughs> that, that's true. That's true. Or as I was told, a lot of students on their way to school have to pull over inside the road and come late because they had to uh, pull a calf, which is helping give birth to a calf. Oh, so, okay. Uh, yeah, it's it's that kind of county, which which I love. <laughs> I pulled I pulled my calf jogging today, but it's an entirely <laughs> different thing. Also, it seems to me, this isn't in there, but this is just a supposition. Sure. The sure. gutting of local news plays a role. And most totally. of these places, even if you looked at counties like inner city counties with maybe lower education levels, they usually have at least a daily newspaper, right? And so the gutting of local news probably plays a role. Yeah, even like medium size, right? So you have mm-hmm. Chattahoochee County in Georgia, right, where they don't have a local news outlet. And like, you know, it used to be that the Columbus Ledger Inquirer, which is a pretty big paper, you know, would have the resources to cover its suburbs 30 minutes away. Now it doesn't do that, right? So I even had someone on Twitter being like, Nick, like, why didn't you talk to a local journalist and get them to help you, you know, get these local government officials to talk to you who were yeah. avoiding you? And I'm like, I wish. Like, there's no one there. That is exactly the point. And, right, that's, and and it's so eye-opening because the reason these people could say, you know, mail me a letter in triplicate and maybe I'll get back to you is that they have no muscle. There's no accountability. They don't, they've never had to deal with anyone calling them to account. That's, that's totally right. Okay, let's be real about this. Voter apathy. Voter apathy, let us say, helped along by either active measures of the government or strategic disinterest. Does this disproportionately help Republicans? I think I think in this current political moment, yes. I think the data bears out where these, you know, the people who are more likely not to vote when barriers are put in their way, and especially with a lot of these states like North Carolina passing laws that are specifically targeting certain segments of the population that are more likely to vote for Democrats. I think right now voter suppression or even just voter apathy, the feeling that your vote doesn't count, does favor Republicans. Are these counties more likely to be minority counties? They are. Um, you know, a lot of these are rural. I, I would say more tied to rural, um, but uh, also, yes, minority plays a role as well. Is there any impetus within the states to change this? I mean, we, we saw <laughs> what Colorado did, but it just seems to me that if you have an inability to elect people of whatever party, but change agents to the legislature, you'll never be able to get change in how you elect people to the legislature. And then it goes on from there to the Senate and to the presidency. Yeah, I mean, I think we know now some of the factors that really help vote by mail is one of them. Um, things like ranked choice voting, which could encourage people because they have more faith in the process that mm. you know they can vote for people they truly believe in. And then if that person you know doesn't get enough votes to win, their second choice is considered, right? Let me interrupt I think, you. I think ranked choice voting, it's an interesting, I think a, I would prefer it for elections that I take place in. I think that that is a second or third order solution to this. Sure. That seems like, that seems like, you know, you have have a problem of transportation. And so let's get the guy a Tesla. No, let's just get the guy a Chevy first. I, I, th- I think it's a very good point. I'm, I'm mentioning it as we know some of the things that do draw more interest, that like do get people more engaged. And oftentimes we are too afraid to try them. But you're right. We don't need to get the Tesla let yet. Let's get the, <laughs> let's get the Chevy to start, yeah. um, which would be stuff like ranked choice voting, which would be more you know accessibility around you know voting hours and voting days and also you know ID laws, things like that. We know the things 
things that work. And also one of the more surprising things is like people just have to have trust in the system. Like when when one election official told me that I didn't I didn't take him seriously. I'm like, come on, like really that, that's really hokey. Like, okay, you have to trust the system or else you're not going to vote. But like when you see it on the ground, it does play out that when people do believe that their vote not just matters because it's a contested state, but matters because it will be taken seriously, you do see different results. Nick Foriezos covers politics for Ozzy. Thanks, Nick. Thanks. Appreciate it. And now the spiel. With the cancellation of exhibition games and the announcement of television blackouts, China continues to pursue punishment of the NBA and the Houston Rockets for the following tweet from their general manager, Daryl Morey. Fight for freedom. Stand with Hong Kong. In the six or so days since the tweet and the criticism and the commissioner's caving and the commissioner's better second attempt to voice support for Morey's rights of free expression, there has been a word, a word that has attached itself to so much of the analysis provided by sports experts. Here now is that word. How complicated and charged this conversation Darryl is. Daryl Morey, it's extremely complicated. It's certainly and, too complex for 140 or even 200. That has a lot of nuance and is really complicated. And It's going to get people, a lot more complicated as it goes on if it's not This story is so complicated and nuanced and goes that was kavitha davidson on the lead podcast bill simmons fox sport one and bleacher reports rick buecher bill simmons the ringer nba show and bill simmons oh it's complicated it's so so complicated you know china doesn't think in years they think in centuries you know well it is complicated insofar any event is informed by history and competing values and many points of data So sure, the protests in China are complicated, and yet, even despite the complication, I think I could boil them down to a not-too-complicated, but also extremely 100% accurate sentence. Here we go. An oppressive regime is trying to deny protesters their civil rights. That is totally true. I can make it more complicated by giving you more facts about just how true it is, but I don't want to overcomplicate it right now. Here's another crack at 100% true, relatively uncomplicated statement. A repressive government is trying to deny its citizens the right to free speech, fair trials, and due process, and that frightens the citizens, so the citizens have taken to the streets in protest. You know, it's not impossible to accurately describe what's going on in Hong Kong. Well, it is impossible to describe it if you work for ESPN, which is literally not allowing its on-air opinion host to express any opinion other than this was a bad business move by Daryl Morey. A selfish tweet. I listened to three or four ESPN podcasts, Bomani Jones, Stephen A. Smith, The Levitard Show, First Take. That's what all of them said. They were all unified. And as I demonstrated yesterday, ESPN is doing that opining without disclosing that their hosts are not free to have whatever opinion they want to have, nor are they disclosing that the opinion that they are not allowed to express is that Daryl Morey was right and that the Chinese government was wrong. The reason ESPN hosts can't express that the NBA should have put its business interests aside and stood with the obviously correct opinion of an employee, even if it meant upsetting China, is that ESPN will not put its business interests aside and stand with the obviously correct opinion 
of an employee because it would mean upsetting China. Sorry to be didactic, but I just think this is a fundamental point and people aren't realizing it enough. ESPN is not just telling their journalists to stick to sports or that the E stands for entertaining. It's that ESPN is in the precise, and I mean the precise situation the NBA is in. And to express certain opinions, as luck would have it, the correct ones, would be engaging in the precise speech that Daryl Morey engaged in. And since so much of NBA coverage comes from ESPN, we are getting nothing in terms of the real story. And the real story isn't that complicated to communicate. Professional communicators who care to can do it. Here is the Sports Illustrated podcast, Open Floor, hosted by Ben Golliver. There's been protests going on uh, in Hong Kong for the last four or five months. Uh, They began as a response to an extradition law that was going to allow China to basically take people from Hong Kong uh, and, and prosecute them in China. Uh, That has morphed into more general uh, pro-democracy type protests. Uh, And it's been a real sore subject, I think, for the Chinese government, you know, all summer long. Yep, that's it. Well done. And here now is Bill Simmons offering this analogy as a way to clear up the complexity. You know, it was interesting to see Joe Size, his the Brooklyn owner, he had that whole statement. And he was talking about how the hot button issue for the Chinese here is that they're worried that there's a, a separatist kind of element to this, mm-hmm. that there's a path here that's been kind of brewing for the last, you know, six to nine months that could lead to Hong Kong. This is what China thinks, potentially trying to become its own country. And that's what China doesn't want. It feels like it's their territory, much like this is a terrible analogy, but you know, if Hawaii was trying to say, hey, actually we want to be our own country, screw you guys. Not that there's so many different problems with that analogy, but it's just to try to understand from an American standpoint. Um, China does not want this. And China, as we know, can be ruthless and brutal in a lot of different ways, which is what's been simmering this whole time with this. And that's where it gets complicated, Jason, is that. Speaking of Brooklyn Nets owner, Joe Tsai. (sighs) Yeah, it's like the United States and Hawaii if Hawaii were advocating for the current civil rights that are enjoyed by Hawaiians and the United States wanted to impose Chinese-style autocracy upon them. In other words, if Hawaii were exactly Hong Kong and if the U.S. were exactly China, therefore it's not a good analogy. And consider that beginning part about China worrying about separatism. That is an exact talking point of the communist government. It is a slander. Yes, a lot of the protesters would like to be free, as would all people who have ever lived in a free society and then seen that freedom gradually taken away from them. And surveys do show a small but not insignificant percent of young people in Hong Kong want to be their own country, but most people don't, and almost no one thinks it actually will happen, and it's just not a demand of the protesters. So here's an actual analogy. Saying that China is worried about separatism is a lot like in America, the Republicans who frequently cite the threat of socialism here. Joe Tsai has mostly been praised by sports observers who do not know what's going on in Hong Kong. Here's Rick Buecher from FS1 and the Bleacher Report. If you want to more, know more why, or at least an explanation why, Joe Tsai, the new, uh, the new owner of the Brooklyn Nets, uh, Chinese businessman, made much of his money over in the People's Republic of China. And uh, you'll, you'll, you'll find out a little bit more about why that was offensive uh, to the Chinese, according to Joe. 
Let me make an analogy. Joe Tsai's explanation of the sensitivities and worries of the Chinese people. He put out a statement that talked about the hurt that the Hong Kong protests cause. It is analogous to if an NBA owner, after the death of Michael Brown, put out a statement about how scared and hurt the law enforcement community is with the Ferguson protesters and how we can't begin to understand the complexity of the long-standing and incredibly nuanced relationship between the police and the citizens. But Joe Tsai was deferred to because he's Taiwanese. Therefore, he's an expert. New owner for the Brooklyn Nets from China said it's a third rail issue. In his nation, he would know. Well, Stephen A. Smith would know if he cared to do some research that Psy operated with the full blessing and cooperation of the government, but also that his company, Alibaba, is planning on an IPO in Hong Kong, and it's predicted to be the biggest IPO in the world this year, but he can't do it because of the protests. So Joe Tsai, Chinese scholar by dint of birth, actually is an interested party who is set to lose millions or billions if these protesters don't shut up and go away. In fact, in fact, Stephen A. Smith, once more on his show today, came loaded with a fusillade of ignorance, vehemently shouting at his audience about just how much he doesn't know about Hong Kong. I'm not about me. I'm about the greater whole. I got a lot of feelings about a lot of things, a lot of issues. But I don't get to speak on every damn thing I see. Certain things ain't my lane. Certain things you got to lead to the big boys. They're in a position. And certain things I can lead to me. I can bring up racism. I can bring up brutality on the part of some police officers. I can bring up being a member of a disenfranchised community because I know about it because it directly impacts me. We start going into another lane. I got to be more careful. I got to lead that to somebody else. I might instigate and provoke a topic, but I'm looking for somebody else to take the lead. I have to say, this just absolutely infuriated me. He's saying, I will speak forcefully about racism in America. And look, that's good. But when someone speaks, even gently but correctly, on a topic that I don't know about, Stephen A. is saying, then I will default to the position that that guy should shut up in favor of business considerations. I really don't know what Stephen A. Smith is screaming about other than to tell everyone at full volume that he has no idea what he's talking about and he's eager to let everyone know how little he knows And he therefore will retreat to a position informed by ignorance that the official government censors who monitor Twitter, which isn't even allowed in China, were right. And the person who voiced support for the oppressed was wrong. Oh, I'm sure Stephen A. Smith would say, when I voice support for the oppressed in America, I'm right because... Well, I guess one reason is that America doesn't censor to the degree or any degree like China does. So in a way, this entire rant that Stephen A. went on is saying, let us endorse the Chinese methods of censorship, because then I will at least side with the censors, right? 
And of course, Stephen A. Smith is also telling you that he's right because he understands racism in America. But Daryl Morey isn't right because Daryl Morey doesn't understand the dynamics of repression and civil rights in Hong Kong. Only he does. He does enough. He got it right. Stephen A. Smith is the one who doesn't understand it. Is it complicated or is that word and concept just a wonderful excuse for ignorance, laziness, and serving the dictates of your corporate overlords? Seriously, you know, if Stephen A. Smith ever wants to be taken seriously on anything other than whether Zaza Pachulia really committed a foul or if Juju Smith-Schuster made that catch inbounds, we should remember his China comments and we should hold him to them. Or is that too complicated? And that's it for today's show. If just producer Daniel Schrader were in an Aussie ad, he would be depicted smearing a leather-bound journal with veal and sicking a rabid dog upon it. The just other producer, Christina DeJosa, were she to be in an Aussie ad, she would take her tape recorder with her XLR cables and tether them to a rodeo bull. Hee-haw! The gist, I just want you to know that when I wear sweatpants, I will heretofore think of the elastic band as an apathy belt. Uproot that Peru and thanks for listening.